From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. We recently launched a new podcast series in partnership with James Madison's Montpelier called American Descent. The following is an episode from the series. When you think of the struggle for civil rights, who comes to mind? Maybe Martin Luther King Jr. or Rosa Parks? Or as we heard in the last episode, the many students who filed suit for integration of public schools and won. But the struggle didn't start in the 1950s. It goes way back and it involved many, many people organizing on multiple fronts. They were practicing dissent, often at risk of harm to themselves or even death. There's so many people that have uh, dissented, that have gone against the grain, that have uh, looked rather than backwards, had looked forward in terms of not what we are, but what we can be and what we uh, shall be and what we will be. Dr. Michael Higginbotham is a professor of law at the University of Baltimore. Dr. Higginbotham is the author of a book called Ghosts of Jim Crow, Ending Racism in Post-Racial America, as well as a casebook on race law. He recently sat down with me for a conversation about a list he made. This is a list of heroes, some well-known, some not, whom he credits with seeing America for what it could be, and then working toward making it so. This is American Descent, a podcast from With Good Reason and James Madison's Montpelier about pushing back in the pursuit of a better America. I'm Kelly Libby. First on the list, a dissenter whose life took an unexpected turn. John Newton. John Newton was um, a slave ship captain back in the 1780s. Uh, He was a Bostonian who did, I think, two runs where he was involved in the Middle Passage, uh, transporting goods from the Americas to England and then going down to the west coast of Africa and capturing individuals, putting them in bondage, and then bringing them to uh, the Americas. John Newton... Um, did something that I think a lot of uh, Americans back then and today have trouble doing, and that is he looked in the mirror after he completed his second um, slave voyage, and he didn't like what he saw. And what he did, though, was to recognize the immorality of what he had participated in. But unlike a lot of people who would recognize it and maybe just stop, John Newton did something more. He became an abolitionist. He became an outspoken person uh, for the end of slavery. And he helped to start uh, abolitionist societies in the Americas. And he also uh, was most famous for writing a song that not only helped him to understand his involvement in uh, a very immoral activity, but also um, to recognize the wrongness, but that people can change uh, and become better. And that song that 
uh, he wrote, and that many individuals may be familiar with even today, uh, is Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. John Newton was able to see uh, the wrongness of what he had participated in, and then was able to not only work to end it, but to help others to, to recognize that slavery was wrong and to get them to also uh, support abolition. So uh, when I think about uh, individuals in American history who dissented, certainly John Newton uh, is an individual that uh, is one of the first, you know, one of the first to uh, dissent. The next name on Dr. Higginbotham's list might be familiar to you, Harriet Tubman. But it's what she did that bears remembrance. I like to tell people she was the uh, best uh, Amtrak employee that we've ever had. Uh, (laughs) She, of course, was uh, on the Underground Railroad. She was a conductor on the Underground Railroad, that institution that has got to be looked at as the biggest um, freedom entity that ever existed. It brought more people out of slavery than any other entity or institution. Uh, The Underground Railroad was a series of routes leading from south to north, and there were about three or four major routes from the southern area of the United States to northern areas in the United States. Um, One route went through uh, Maryland, where I reside, uh, another uh, two routes went through Ohio from from Kentucky to Ohio, and um, those were uh, routes where individuals uh, would go south, would identify um, slaves that wished to escape, and these individual conductors would help those slaves um, to find routes to freedom. And Harriet Tubman uh, was the most successful Underground Railroad conductor in terms of bringing uh, individuals to freedom. She uh, was involved in 19 separate missions. She actually escaped from slavery herself, from uh, Maryland where she was enslaved, escaped, and then went back 19 different times uh, to help others. She was not only cunning and, and smart and brilliant, but she had the courage and tenacity uh, more so than anybody else. So if I had one person by my side, it would be her if I was in a, a nasty fight because she carried a gun in one hand and a Bible in the other. She said, I only have two rules. Uh, the first rule is I'm in charge, which means whatever I say you do. And the second rule is when you sign up with me, Uh, on my Underground Railroad train, uh, there's no turning back. You will either get to freedom or you will get to heaven, one or the other. She became a very valuable asset to uh, Union forces during the Civil War. So she became one of the leading scouts to lead Union troops safely uh, through uh, the South and back. Oh, wow. Yeah. Huh. Was Harriet Tubman trying to stay under the radar, or was she well-known in her time? Uh, you would think she was staying under the radar, but um, there was a $500 reward uh, listed for Harriet Tubman. Capture dead or alive. 
$500. That was big money back then. Hmm. And you can imagine if you were a person who was enslaved in the South seeking freedom, and she's, she's there with those two rules, it seems like that would make you feel safe and like you're going to get out. Absolutely, absolutely. Who else is on your list? Uh, uh, definitely would have to put Lloyd Gaines on that list. So Lloyd Gaines uh, was a college student in Missouri, and he simply wanted to go to law school uh, in his home state. Uh, the University of Missouri had a prohibition against African Americans attending. What they would do, though, to satisfy the Plessy versus Ferguson separate but equal, most states at that time would provide a scholarship for an African American to go out of state to some school that accepted African Americans. When they sat down in the 1930s, uh, several uh, leaders said, well, you've got to go into court and say separate but equal is wrong. Separate but equal was wrong the day it was sanctioned by the Supreme Court in 1896. And uh, we knew it was wrong then. We know it's wrong today. The Supreme Court should reverse its decision. Thurgood Marshall argued in that room in 1930, we can change America by attacking the equal part, not the separate part. Because in most states, they haven't provided equality. The Supreme Court said separate but equal in Plessy. So in education, separate but equal should mean $1 spent for every white child is $1 must be spent for every black child. So Thurgood Marshall says, let's go into court and let's argue that Plessy has been violated because there hasn't been equality. Once we get uh, the Supreme Court to do that, states will have to provide equality, but most likely they will integrate because they're not going to be willing to spend the money that it takes. That was a gamble on the part of Marshall, but in 1938, Thurgood Marshall, Charles Houston go before the United States Supreme Court. Uh, they make the argument that, look, there's no separate but equal school in Missouri. So therefore, Missouri has violated the Plessy Doctrine. Supreme Court in an eight to one decision says, you're absolutely right. Lloyd Gaines, after four years of litigation, Lloyd Gaines wins. And since the state of Missouri doesn't have a separate but equal law school, they must admit Lloyd Gaines until they have a separate but equal law school. And so Thurgood Marshall tries to contact Lloyd Gaines after four years of litigation. They're not able to contact Lloyd Gaines because he walks out of his dorm several months after uh, the decision comes down and he's never seen or heard from again. And what I tell my students is while we're sitting in a classroom, academic classroom, talking theory, there are real consequences. These individuals are demonstrating tremendous courage in standing up for what they believe in, uh, in dissenting in America and going against uh, the status quo. 
and Lloyd Gaines gave the ultimate sacrifice, in my view, uh, so that law students today could be in a racially integrated classroom. And so if to me, all law students today owe Lloyd Gaines a great debt of gratitude for his courage and for his willingness to challenge the status quo and be on the list of great dissenters. another great dissenter, uh, George Wythe. And uh, George Wythe was a slave owner uh, in Virginia. He was a founding father, signer of the Declaration of Independence, inherited over a hundred slaves, freed every slave he inherited uh, but two, uh, and became a member of the Virginia legislature. He was the first law professor uh, uh, in the country as well. Uh, George Wythe uh, becomes a member of the Virginia legislature, and he introduces a bill, the Gradual Abolition Act, which uh, would gradually abolish slavery in Virginia. Now, you know, that was, that was a small step, right, in the abolition movement. But um, I mention that because White couldn't get much support in the Virginia legislature for that. So he steps down from the Virginia legislature and becomes a judge in Virginia. And in 1806, he has a case that comes before him uh, that allows him uh, to put his practice and beliefs into gear. Uh, It's called Hudgens versus Wright. And it was a freedom suit case brought by the Wright family, uh, which was of mixed American Indian and white ancestry. And uh, someone, Hudgens, claimed that the Wrights uh, were his slaves. There was no evidence at all except for a claim, these individuals are my slaves. Goes before George Wythe as a trial court judge, and George Wythe says, how must I rule if I have no evidence except a claim that these individuals are slaves? Wife says, I look at the Virginia Bill of Rights, which says all persons are born free and equal. I interpret the Virginia language in the Bill of Rights as giving everyone the presumption of freedom. Therefore, the rights must go free. Goes up to the Virginia Court of Appeals. And the Virginia Court of Appeals says, Wife, you're right. The rights must go free but you're wrong on your reasoning. The rights must go free because there is a presumption of freedom for those who look a certain way. And this is when the court lays out what I call the first racial profiling case under the American Constitution. 1806, the court lays out a racial profile And it really is specific. It says, okay, suppose you come across three individuals walking north on the road in Virginia, and someone claims that these three individuals are his slaves. How must we rule? And the Virginia Court of Appeals says we must rule based upon the profile. If an individual looks white, skin looks white, with a prominent Roman nose, 
and, and wavy straight hair and thin lips, that individual gets a presumption of freedom. If the individual has copper-colored skin, long, jetty, black, straight hair, and I'm quoting from the case, long, jetty, black, straight hair, that individual also gets the presumption of freedom. But if the individual has thick lips, broad nose, woolly hair, and this is a, is a quote also, or inclining thereto, woolly hair or inclining thereto, that individual is entitled to the presumption of slavery. Now, for 20,000 Virginians, blacks who were free in Virginia in 1806, that was a denial of their due process rights. And I mentioned that White was the first law professor. St. George Tucker was the author of The Appeal. He overruled Wythe. He was a student of Wythe. And so it's fascinating to look at Wythe who said, you know what, I'm going to write a book, The Mistakes of the Virginia Court of Appeals. I'm going to write a book about how my students didn't listen. Dr. Higginbotham says any version of this list has to end with a man who is actually nicknamed the Great Dissenter. Seriously, it's on his Wikipedia page. And this is a person named John Harlan, who is a United States Supreme Court justice, known as the Great Dissenter, because John Harlan dissented in the civil rights cases, which were decided right before Plessy versus Ferguson, and uh, in Plessy versus Ferguson. And it begins with the slaughterhouse cases in 1873, the first cases that the Supreme Court uh, interpreted in terms of Reconstruction Amendments. And it ends with Plessy versus Ferguson. And the court narrows the protections so that it almost eviscerates the Equal Protection Clause. It almost eviscerates the um, Due Process Clause with respect to blacks. And Justice Harlan dissents, and his dissents are powerful stuff. And so powerful that 60 years later, in Brown versus Board of Education, he's the only justice that the nine justices in Brown can agree with. And the nine justices in Brown basically say, Harlan, 60 years earlier, you were right. Harlan's dissent basically says, we know why blacks are being excluded. Everyone knows this. The state is trying to say that it's because they want to uphold freedom of choice, that they want to allow blacks and whites to choose how they interact. And so uh, the laws separating blacks and whites are basically an embrace of freedom, not a denial of it. And Justice Harlan says, let's be honest. We know why they're being passed. They're being passed because some whites don't want to sit in a car with blacks. And Harlan says, if you ever want to reduce racial conflict, if you really want to create peace and tranquility in American society, you have to get rid of these laws. These laws are the cause of the conflict. These laws are the cause of the friction. He says the true purpose is 
to denigrate blacks. These laws basically embrace an inferiority of blacks based on race. And, he, and Harlan says, they're wrong. And everybody knows they're wrong. Uh, Harlan was right 60 years before his time. What can you say about the legacy of some of this dissent that has happened over hundreds of years? Yeah. Um, I think when you look at the progress that we've made in America in terms of racial uh, equality, much of that progress has to be equated to these dissenters because they were able not only to make arguments that were later embraced, they provided the ammunition for the later embracing of these arguments of equality. Is the Constitution too flawed? You know what? Um, I believe that you can criticize. We're not perfect, and you should be able to criticize and make us better. But we do have a lot of wonderful things, and we need to recognize that, and we need to take pride in those things in the Constitution. The founders, uh, they got it right on a lot of things. The, the separation of powers concept is a wonderful one. The absolute power corrupts absolutely. It's a great concept, and I think it's really done, done us well. I do think that it's important when you're thinking about dissent in America, I do think it's important to recognize just how much of a contribution uh, dissenters have made. When you look back on our society, when you look at those who went against the grain, when you look at those who petitioned the Supreme Court or who went to Congress, um, we need to be very thankful that not only do we protect those dissenters, but that eventually much of what they were dissenting about has become the norm. And so when we look at today and what's happening, I think we have to keep that in mind because there's a lot of, there's a lot of anger, there's a lot of anxiety about dissent that's going on in our country today. But 10, 20, 30 years from today, some of those dissenters are going to be the norm. When we were making this show, we did a little more research on one of the heroes mentioned earlier, Harriet Tubman. Like with a lot of historical figures, particularly black women, there's more to Harriet Tubman than we tend to learn in school. So we wanted to share with you what we learned on a recent phone call with an expert on the subject, Vilesa Thompson. When we think about Harriet Tubman, you know, we think of her as the Moses. You know, Moses in the Bible was leading people to freedom, you know, and that's what Herod did for enslaved black folks. She uh, was the conductor of the Underground Railroad to where she put her own life on the line to ensure that others were free to have the freedom that they deserved. And she did so steadfastly and repeatedly to free as many people as she could and encounter so many dangers along the way. 
Do you remember your first encounter with Harriet Tubman as like a child, as a student? Uh, probably when I was in elementary school and learning about um, Black history, which is, you know, I'm you know, pretty sure that's many of our first encounters when it comes to Harriet's story. But when you dig deeper into Harriet's story, you realize she's incredible, not just because of what she did, but because she represented so many identities, including disability. Phyllisa Thompson is a licensed master social worker, writer, disability rights consultant, and activist, and the founder of Ramp Your Voice. Ramp Your Voice is an organization and blog that I started in 2013 as a way to tell the disabled experience from an intersectional lens, particularly as a social worker, um, a Black disabled woman, and my experiences in the world and what I observe. The main thing that we are missing when we talk about Harriet Tubman is acknowledging her disability status. She sustained a severe head injury because she was trying to protect another slave during her youth. And as somebody who was an African-American studies neither in college and has heard Harriet's story for so long, it really shocked me that her disability was omitted in the narratives about her story. This is a person who was not thought of as human. And she saw her disability and what came, you know, about in her life as something not being condemned or not being ugly or being negative. And I think that's very important, you know, in her story and for us to really see how she used her disability in an empowering way in the work that she did. Harriet Tubman's injury caused her to have pain, dizziness, and spells in which she would fall into a deep sleep. She saw the spells, the hallucinations that she had as God's way of speaking to her. You know, she really saw them as a mechanism to do the work that she was called to do and to do what she felt, you know, God wanted her to do. And when we talk about slavery, we need to understand how there were slaves who were born disabled and how slaves also acquired disabilities, like what Harriet did, and understanding how um, slave owners viewed disability, whether they exploited uh, the slave person's disability or saw them as a financial liability and disregarded their life altogether. So for me, when I look at Harriet, I see what she represents in the resilience you know, when it comes to doing what's right, when it comes to facing your oppressors, Harriet truly represented what Black women do is not only free ourselves, but also free everybody around us. You know, once Black women are free, everybody has freedom. And I really feel that Harriet represents, you know, is truly the epitome of that saying. And the fact that she's a Black disabled woman adds this complexity to that. And for Harriet, she represents me, a Black disabled woman, and she represents the strength that I can have in continuing to free my people in the work that I, that I do in present day that I'm allowed to do because of what Harriet steadfastly and relentlessly pushed towards. So Harriet is truly, truly a monumental figure to my work and someone who I lean on as I continue the legacy that she does in setting us all free. 
This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. You're listening to With Good Reason at Virginia Humanities. Welcome back. Earlier in the show, we highlighted historical figures who, against great odds, pushed against the status quo. For Americans in the 21st century, too, making positive change can feel like a complicated endeavor. Terry Beitzel is director of the Mahatma Gandhi Center at James Madison University where he helps his students better understand political protest as a form of citizen engagement. What inspired me was my 74-year-old Amish Mennonite mother, who um, has never voted before, has never registered to vote. And uh, about two years ago, she decided that she, in fact, needed to do something that she needed to be involved in positive ways somehow. And so she has since registered to vote and has become much more active in politics. I was just wondering if you came from an Amish Mennonite background yourself and therefore have strong feelings about how to engage in the world when we are trying to create change. Uh, Yes, I did come from an Amish Mennonite uh, background. My parents were both raised speaking Pennsylvania Dutch. I was always under the impression, as I was raised, that we were not really to be involved in politics. My father was a conscientious objector. He always felt that since he refused to join the military, he thought he should not be voting for people who make those decisions. He always wrestled with that. So I come from a long line of what are commonly known as the historic peace churches. But there has always been a strong social justice component in the Mennonites. And so um, I probably picked up on that part of it from my parents. So as you are helping students gain the tools for making positive change in the world, how do you help them navigate between revolution and disobedience and achieving change and pushback? I think this is one of the very important things, and we struggled quite a bit in, in designing the course around this. But I think the idea is that dissent is more than simply complaining about something, or it it should be more than that. Dissent is thoughtful and critical evaluation of power and authority. Dissent involves both thinking and action. We can dissent in a number of ways, and we can see many examples of dissent in the United States today. Some ways are more destructive than others. So what we tried to do with civic engagement was to keep in mind that we are on this political journey with other people. Some of these people we may not like very much at all, but we're still on the same journey with them. What is the most valuable course of instruction for helping us learn how to grapple when we feel so strongly about an issue that we want to fight? Well, I think one of the ways is, you know, to understand that it's much easier to destroy than it is to build. However, conflict itself can be very healthy. One way to understand how conflict can be positive, I think, is the lunch counter sit-ins in Nashville during the Civil Rights Movement. The dissenters there helped dramatize the injustice of the Jim Crow South. Uh, They showed by their example of nonviolent resistance that they actually understood what it means to live in democracy. 
They understood that democracy is about turning violence into politics. They understood democracy better than those who tried to oppress them. How have you set up your course to help get at these issues, to make them real and allow students to engage and learn through them? When the course starts, and this is always a very odd experience for the students, I give them an index card that's turned upside down. I tell them to turn the index card over, and I have grades from A through F on those index cards, and (laughs) they're just given randomly. I tell the students, that's your grade for the semester. Upon leaving the classroom, uh, simply show me your index card. That begins usually an hour and a half discussion around what is justice and how do we come to understand that. So some people are clearly happy. Those who benefit from the system, even though they might acknowledge that it's not a fair system, they have no energy or aren't going to do much to try to change the system because they're benefiting from it. Those with the the lowest grades have the most energy to try to change the system. (laughs) And I say, well, what would happen if I'm going to do this? And usually they jump to the retributive justice model. What is that? The use or the threat of the use of force. You know, so they will tell me things like, I will go to your boss. And I tell them why I have a breakfast with the dean. You know, he's kind of on my side. You know, so they'll usually come to other things like, we will slash the tires on your car. Uh, We will find out where you live and if you have a family. I mean, so they come up with some creative things. And then the thing I kind of ask then is, okay, so what if I left the room for 10 minutes and I just leave you here alone to sort this out? And I'm coming back in 10 minutes, whatever index card you have in your hand is your grade. Well, they're usually a number of smiles, and I say, why are you smiling? And it's usually if there's several football players in the classroom, they feel very good about that option, you know, because they, like, you know, the two or three of us can gang up on someone with an A and take it through force. And so we have a discussion, is that the best way to solve issues around justice? Because we use force all the time to solve issues around justice. And they tend to agree, well, no, that's not really fair. You know, so what else would you do? And uh, what the students I've noticed the last two or three years is they've started using the procedural justice model a little bit more saying, well, maybe we would actually come and talk to you. And that's something that I had not heard for probably seven or eight years in doing this exercise. And then we have a, have a conversation about, well, you know, should we do puzzle solving or problem solving? Do we need to change the system or do we need to just figure out um, how we can get along in the system. Because many students just say, well, I will change the grade on the index card, or I will find another index card and and change the grade. I will drop the course. You know, I will uh, sell my higher grade for a certain amount of money to uh, someone with a lower grade. But I'm really trying to get them to problem solving. And that's to understanding when the system itself is unfair and unjust. You know, then what do you do about it? And that's when the students often get a little closer to the, well, maybe we would talk to you. And so that's where I'm trying to get them at. You work in a field called justice studies. How do justice studies help us look at problems we're all encountering in our lives? Well, I think the one thing it it tries to do is to say, well, what is the right thing to do given this situation? There's a lot of data and recent research coming out on nonviolent resistance of how effective it can actually be. 
that it, it tends to be twice as effective as a violent insurgency. For example, a statistical examination of over 100 transitions uh, from 1945 to 2006 found that nonviolent resistance had significantly more freedoms and civil liberties at the end. And these regimes also lasted an average of nearly 50 years. Compared to those that stem from violent takeover, which last on average about five to 10 years. And so this is just some of the information. We don't think that nonviolence works for some reason, when in so many ways in the 20th century, it, it has worked. We just tend to overlook it. What are some of the key principles behind nonviolent civic resistance? Well, I think one of the keys, and, and it's, it sounds odd, but is remaining primarily nonviolent. Uh, the second is to encourage and coordinate the defection of police and military. Uh, the third is to isolate the oppressive regime or the oppressive elements of a regime. And number four, to always collect information and to keep data, accurate data. And I guess if there's one principle that I would say that is the guiding principle behind this, and it appears in almost every world, major world religion, and most minor religions. And that's the principle of the golden rule. You know, and that's simply do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Um, and I think that is probably the best way to think about this. How would we want other people to treat us? And that's how we should treat them when we, when we, even when we're dissenting. You know, because we can dissent in very positive ways. Um, we have tremendous examples of Gandhi and Martin Luther King, and there are thousands of others. So here, I think, we're the golden rule that we just have to understand that we're on this, this mission of uh, on this planet with other people. And so how do we interact with them? Terry Beitzel is director of the Mahatma Gandhi Center at James Madison University. Coming up next, the science and rhetoric of climate change. For decades, scientists have studied and shared their findings about climate change and its effects. So why is there a gap in the public's understanding of the issue? Isabel Fay and Christopher Labashir recently taught an innovative course on the science and rhetoric of climate change. It's part of a new curriculum at Longwood University that focuses on democratic citizenship. Together with their students, they address some of the communication challenges around the issue of climate change. One of the main kind of approaches that we took is to say that climate change is a problem that we have uncertainty about, that is incredibly complex, that involves multiple disciplines, that's, of course, a science, but it's also politics, it's culture, it's economics, it's a civil rights issue, it's a social issue, it's all these things, and it's all twisted and tied together. And because it's not just a science issue, at Longwood, our future citizen leaders, 
they need to know about climate change and why that's important for them. Part of the goal for this course was to allow students to make connections and see the connections between different disciplines. What are the challenges for the scientists to communicate effectively in the public sphere? And how is science relevant and even exciting for non-scientists? The scientists have done their part in studying climate change for many, many years now, I believe since the 1960s and 70s. The hiccup has been largely a communication one. How has it been that we have all of this overwhelming evidence about climate change? And still, at least in this country, we still have so many uh, people who are skeptical about climate change. So what do you think is clouding the issue in the public rhetoric? I think there are many layers of why the public has been, I would say, a little bit slow in um, reacting to what the scientists have been saying. I think one of the problems is that climate change is a theory essentially telling us about how things are becoming uninhabitable in some parts of the earth. But for a lot of us humans, we react more to immediate danger and immediate threats. So for example, if there's a hurricane or there's flooding, we react to that threat when it's immediate, when it's a day away, when it's a week away. I think another problem is that climate change challenges us to really examine our way of life and who wants to do that. It does challenge us to take some responsibility over our lifestyle and the way that it affects other species on this planet and in the end also our own species, right? It is difficult for humans to take on the charge and make behavioral changes so I think that is another part of why climate change has been difficult yeah, to uptake. especially for us in Western cultures, we've had quite the lifestyle for a long time. And to be clear, I'm talking about me too. I enjoy my gas-guzzling car. I enjoy my air conditioning and heating. I enjoy my large house and my TV and my electricity. But this issue causes us to turn and look at ourselves and we've got to think about our lifestyle. We've got to think about the future. The most recent Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report suggests that impacts will be felt much sooner than 2100. So, so those things are in the present. So do you think it's more than just, are we willing to make those personal sacrifices, but also, to some extent, a campaign of disinformation by certain parties? Absolutely. With an issue like climate change, those who would be most affected by governmental regulations is obviously the fossil industry. And so, yes, there has been a lot of evidence within the last two, three years by Columbia University that has shown that actually there has been purposeful perpetuation of uncertainty as a communication strategy that has been employed by companies like ExxonMobil to keep the conversation about climate change open and to keep the conversation about whether climate change is real, when really that is stifling the kind of conversation that we should be having in the public sphere, which is about how we're going to resolve climate change in the first place. Let me ask you how your students felt about this, both coming into the class and then later. 
I think there was a lot of fear. First, it's science. Science is always a little daunting. But secondly, it's not just science, it's climate change. And that's a big buzzword. It's a big controversy. So there was a lot of fear about the course for those two reasons. I thought young people, however, were the most engaged about let's do something about climate change. They they may be nationally. Um, I think they're bringing their family, they're bringing their culture with them, they're bringing their religion and their faith with them. And so for some, not all, but for some, this poses a conflict. And I remember that there was one student in particular who just who just outright asked, mm-hmm. like, like, what does this mean for me as a, as a Christian? How, how do I rectify this? How do I justify this with my faith? I completely understood where he was coming from. And it's less, I think, about his faith and more about kind of the identity of who who he's been and who he's been around. Do you mean that that for some students, the faith means they're part of a conservative community? And a conservative community has strong feelings about climate change science. Right. And so, so really, that student, I think, was feeling some conflict, like seeing the data walking through this systematically. And I think he, in his mind, was saying, yeah, this is right. But my people, my tribe, my culture doesn't believe this. If I believe this, then I'm out of my tribe. I'm out of the people I identify with. And in his case, that may be the case. Maybe. I tried to I tried to say that the, the two don't have to, your faith, Christianity, and science don't have to conflict. They don't conflict for me. I don't have any issue. And trying to impart that to him in, in, in as sensitive a way as possible to say that, that this doesn't need to be an issue. You don't have to give up your faith, and you don't have to give up your belief in science. They can coexist, and that's just fine. I'm surprised that there was so much identity and emotion wrapped up in this subject that it couldn't just be sort of like, sit down, open your laptops, and let's start talking today about this. Yes, it is very surprising, It is, but maybe not quite as surprising if you see the way that we're talking about climate change in this country, right? You observe this has emerged as a huge controversy. So the classroom is really just a reflection of society at large. How long have you lived in this country versus Germany where you grew up? I have lived in this country for 13 years. So at some point when you came over here, were you shocked by the difference in attitudes toward climate and climate care in the U.S. and Germany? I was morbidly fascinated by what was going on in this country and how much trouble Americans had accepting the science of climate change. I was just shocked at how much trouble there was in getting regulation passed in Congress and getting support for regulation about climate change and carbon greenhouse gas emissions. And I'm not saying that Germany is all innocent. I think they're the, lar- they're the number one carbon emitter in Europe. But I never heard in Germany of anybody denying the science of climate change. And here it was so not just prevalent, but it was actually representing a a full cultural group, an identity. And I think that's what made it so terribly difficult to get through because people's identities were attached to a scientific 
conversation. So in Germany, you have huge corporate interests, and you have different faith groups, and you have conservatives and liberals. Why the difference in the U.S., do you think, when it comes to embracing or denying climate change? I think that in Germany, we, I won't say that we do not value consumption and convenience. I mean, we do live a very privileged lifestyle in Germany. I will never deny that. But I believe from my observation is that it's not ranked quite as high as it is in the US. And so when there have been policies about banning plastic bags or banning aluminum cans, which you do not find anymore anymore in Europe. I have never heard anyone complaining about, oh, my convenience is not as great anymore now that I can't have plastic bags at the store. And I don't know if that would be the case in the US. So, And I'm not saying that this is necessarily a big obstacle about about how we talk about climate change in the United States. I just think that, that the cultural factors need to be taken into consideration in finding the right communication approach to reach Americans. So, for example, as a foreigner in this country, I would say that one of the better ways to engage Americans would be through what is a technologically savvy innovation that might help us carb greenhouse gas emissions rather than how can you change your individual behavior because this is the number one country on individualism in the world. (laughs) There is no other country in the world that ranks as high on individual rights as the United States. So it's very difficult to tell people in the US, you have to change your behavior. There might just be an approach that targets more technological innovation, Tesla, Solar City, as ways to combat climate change. I think what I'm most surprised by is is I'm not much of a historian, but what little bit I do know is that America has traditionally been the, the country that can do hard things. Like if there's a problem, we can solve it. For some reason, it seems like within the past decade or two, we've become the country that cannot do hard things anymore. That worries me. Because what what we need right now is to do hard things. We need those individual lifestyle changes. We also need those technological innovations. We have it within us to do this. Well, Isabel and Chris, thank you for sharing your insights on With Good Reason. Of course. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much for having us. It was a pleasure. Isabel Fay is a professor of communication studies, and Christopher Labashir is a professor of environmental science at Longwood University. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods and by the University of Virginia Health System, pioneering treatments to save lives and preserve brain function for stroke patients, uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Elliot Majerzik, Kelly Libby, Cass Adair, and Allison Byrne. Jeannie Palin handles listener services. We had studio help from Chris Boros at WMRA in Harrisonburg. Additional music in this episode is from Blue Dot Sessions. 
For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.